Sorry about the noise. My neighbour's sanding his deck. My motto? Don't work on your deck. Play on it. Life's good with a Trex deck. Low maintenance with a 25-year residential warranty. Trex, the world's number one decking brand. Welcome to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. everybody and welcome to the show made possible by our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Today we're joined by a man who won three singles titles and 16 doubles crowns on the professional tennis circuit from 1982 to 95. Wally Masur reached a singles ranking of 15 at the height of his career, making the semi-finals of the Australian and US Opens. He's been the captain of Australia's Davis Cup team, a board member of Tennis Australia and a prominent voice in the media since hanging up the racket. Wally, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Uh, yeah, look, good to be here. I'm a little concerned. Are the Tobin Brothers Funerals, are they the sponsor for every guest or just, you know, guests of my vintage? Uh, no, uh, certainly uh, our very, very loyal guests each and every week. So, no, don't take that as a signal to you, Wally, and you do look... I thought in... it, yeah, I thought it might have been targeted advertising. No, okay, good. You look in rude health. I'll, I'll add that. No, I'm, it's all good. I'm, uh, I'm up here in Sydney. Um, we're having some shocking weather, but uh, look, I'm still in and around tennis, so yeah, it keeps you keeps you in shape. Just while we're talking health, what, your physical health. I mean, is how's the body at 59 years young after all those years of pounding and pounding on varying services, courts around the globe? Surely that takes a, a physical toll. Well, I think yeah, it's probably the back when I played um, as a kid, it was pretty good because there was a lot of grass and. Clay, not so much clay in Australia, but loam, like sand loam courts. So they're good on a, on a, on a young teenager's body growing up. Um, obviously, when I played, there was a lot of hardcore tennis. And the game's changed dramatically. It's a much more violent game now. The way the guys hit the ball is incredible. Um, back in, you know, sort of 70s and 80s, as I was learning my craft and becoming a professional, heavy rackets, transfer of weight, you know, the racket head um, speed wasn't so great, wasn't such a violent hit. But there was a lot of serve volleying. Um, and serve volleying is very stop, start, decelerate, accelerate, lunge. So what I've ended up with is um, I've had a lot of knee surgeries, you know, where the cartilage is sort of ruined. Um, and then you end up with bone on bone. Yeah. So I ended up having a tibial osteotomy of my right um, knee. And I think I'm pretty close to getting one on the left. Um, whereas today, a lot of the, the modern players end up with sort of wrist, elbow, shoulder, hip because of the big rotations. Um, in my day, it was a bit more the knees, you know, just the lunging yeah. and the serve volleying was the problem. So you, you pay a bit of a price. Tennis is not so much dynamic injuries. It's more overuse. So it's not, some, not even the matches. It's more just the, the volume of training that you do um, to be fit to play. And probably a mistake I made, um, and sports science gets better and better all the time. Hmm. I, I used to like to run. I, I really enjoyed running. Um, and it was Jim kind of came into the the training ethos midway through my career. But when I started out, it was very much a running game. That's how everybody trained. And I just ran too much on the road for my own good. Um, so that was probably something I could have avoided if I had my time over. <laughs> so a bit of road running on top of all the tennis training. Yeah, no, I, I did. I, I enjoyed the running. So when I started, people like Paul McNamee, Peter McNamara, um, Chris Lewis from New Zealand, They'd spent time at Hoppies. Uh, it was really old school, you know, the 10K run, the 400s, um, hill sprints. Barely went into the gym. That kind of came a little bit later. But, um, you know, like guys like Paul McNamee and Chris Lewis could post some really serious times. And, and Pat Cash, for example, could mm. post a sensational 400-metre time. Um, so it was very much the, the way that players trained when I started out. That's, so that's the physical side. I mean, what about the mental side? We'll get into your career in greater detail later, but you've been described as someone who possessed a quiet strength and confidence, and we'll get to doubles later, but this can be a lonely sport. I mean, what, what, how, did you, how would you describe the mental application over a long period of time on tour? Yeah, look, I'm probably not a good one to ask because I found the whole process of playing tennis unbelievably enjoyable. Um, even the stress of it. And it sort of worries me a bit when I hear really successful players talking about the angst and the stress. Because um, when you quit and 
you go through life and you've got kids and they're not well and your parents are, you know, sick and passing away. You know, there's so many things in life that are so monumental. And tennis to me is like gold. It's like the time of your life. You're a young kid traveling the world, playing tennis with your mates. It just doesn't get any better. So I really don't like to hear about the angst and the anguish because, you know, let me tell you, players, that comes later in life. You know, yeah. things get tough as, you, as, as life goes on. Um, probably when I look back upon it, I mean, I was an only child. So, you know, played a lot of soccer as a kid, um, played team sports at school. Um, like the independent nature of tennis, I like the fact that it was down to me. Every, every ball is you. Um, there's an outcome, decisions to be made. Um, but probably my best strength was I was just very good at doing the same thing day in, day out. Um, that was probably my strength, um, concentrating for long periods of time. I was pretty conservative. Um, in hindsight, I probably wished I'd been a bit more adventurous. in my Just the way I played and the way I approached the game, I was very careful. Um, it killed me to make a mistake. Um, I made plenty of them, but it would kill me. So I was very careful and cautious. Um, but that can be a bit limiting. Um, but I think if I if I look back upon it now, sort of objectively, I think I was just unbelievably good at getting up the next day and doing the same thing that I'd just done the day previous um, without interruption. And that probably helped me get to where I needed to go. So, yeah, and just on that, so the drive, the resolve, the flat-out insatiable hunger that you have to have, particularly, well, in all elite sports, but particularly this one, I mean, has to come off the back of everything else to hack it on the world tour. I mean, did you always have that? Did you think some things we're born with psychologically or did you harness it as you, you got to it? I, I guess you have a predilection, you know, you, you gravitate towards certain things for certain reasons. I, I can't really explain. Um, I love sport. You know, I, I, I was no, my dad was Austrian, you know, he took me skiing. I started skiing at five, you know, anything outdoors, anything remotely attached to a bat and a ball, soccer, you know, played footy at school, mucking around, whatever, whatever I could play, I, I did. Um, and as I say, I just like the, the individual nature of tennis, that it was kind of every decision was down to you. I did appreciate that. Um, I, yeah, look, I, I don't know. I just, um, I was sitting down, my, I've got four kids and my kids all played tennis socially and some played at school, but, you know, they just played to a certain level and they were happy to do a whole bunch of other things. And I think my two boys preferred to do sports that I had nothing to do with. They played rugby and rowing. And that's two things I never did. I think they were just happy to go in that direction. But I said to my son once, he was fairly young and we used to go over every now and then to hit some balls across the road on the courts. And I said, do you want to go and hit some tennis balls? And he went, he went like this, he went, why would I want to do that? Like, you know, that incessant chasing and hitting the ball. And I said, yeah, good point. I'm not sure why you'd want to do that. But I don't know. It's just like, you know, like a Jack Russell, you throw the ball at the park and the Jack Russell chases it. I don't know. Maybe I had a bit of Jack Russell in me. No filter on the kids, is there? They just uh, give it no. to you straight, don't they? <laughs> yeah, no, but I, I, I sort of thought about it. I thought, yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah, why would you want to do that on a hot day? Yeah, good, good call. What about you as a kid then, Wally? So born in the UK, um, raised in Australia. When did, you, when did the family move over here? Uh, Mum was Australian, Dad was European, uh, Dad was Austrian, so they were living over there at the time. But I, I look, I was I was born in England. I think I was there for about three weeks. Right. <laughs> um, came back to uh, Melbourne, family. Dad was a chiprock plasterer, so he needed to find some work in Canberra. was a bit of a housing boom going on in the 60s, so they bought a house in uh, Canberra, and Mum's still there all those years later. Um yeah, grew up there, and what a great place to grow up. You know, it's yeah. sort of a big country town at the time, like sort of Albury or Wagga, where facilities were fantastic, um, courts was accessible. And I sometimes think, you know, I was so fortunate to be born in Australia. Well, I wasn't born in Australia, but to grow up in Australia because um, the facilities were phenomenal. You know, access was phenomenal. Playing sport was cheap. Um, my parents had the ability to, you know, take me to events, and I, I had good coaching as a young kid, and kind of think how lucky I was. Um, you know, there must be so many great, great athletes around the world that just don't get a chance. Yeah. They don't get the opportunity that I got um, to to play their chosen sport. I always find this part of it fascinating, people's journeys, and we'll get into how yours started after the, the break we're about to take. But, you know, it, it, does the sport find you? Do you find the sport? How many great swimmers, tennis players, rugby players, AFL players are there that just never had the chance or the exposure, or met the right person. Do you ever find yourself wondering, is it just a, a catalogue of things coming together to make it possible? 
Well, I think I, I saw a documentary on Warren Buffett and he sort of said it pretty well. They were talking, you know, the interviewer was sort of suggesting that Warren was a genius. And he goes, hang on, hang on. He said, I was born at a certain time uh, to an upper middle class white family in middle America. Post-war, America went on an economic boom. Um, you know, I, I had a college, I was white, I had a college education. He said, I was probably in the top 0.5% of people in terms of opportunity on my doorstep. Um, and he said, and I had a mind for maths and, you know, I fell into it. Um, you know, and that, I guess what, what he's suggesting is, you know, you look at Australia, it's stable economically, socially. It's just been a stable country. Our facilities are incredible. We've had government um, that has been solid, um, you know, judicial system that's fair, or, you know, or reasonably fair, I guess. Um, my parents were middle class. I was an only child. Mum was a school teacher. Dad was a jiprock plasterer. Mm. They were always employed, you know. And yeah, I think it's. I think you have to look back and think how you know they call it the lucky country. I certainly think it was because you see these tremendous athletes around the world, um, and obviously some of them can gravitate towards soccer. You know, a sport, for example, that doesn't require. Look at like a, a Maradona or a Pele, for example, who came from the slums, or you know, some some incredible athletes might find gold through boxing you know, a really tough, tough way to make a living. Um, but tennis is probably a sport that you need a little bit of history in, in terms of your family to get you, introduce it to you. Um, and you probably need some means to pursue it. Um, so I think there'd be a lot of great athletes in the world that probably didn't get that chance. You're listening to This Is Your Journey. It's thanks to Tobin Brothers, a family-owned business since 1934. A promising junior, Wally Masseur's rise through the tennis ranks is up next. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, great to have your company on This Is Your Journey, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We're chatting to former Aussie tennis player turned commentator, Wally Masseur. So, Wally, your first introduction to tennis. How did it come about? When did it come about? What's your earliest tennis memory? Uh, Mum and Dad uh, both played. Uh, my dad, uh, he, he, came, he came as an immigrant to Australia in 1954 out of war-torn Europe. Couldn't believe his luck that he could join the Albury Tennis Club and pay a couple of pounds and be a member and play on beautiful grass courts. And then he joined the golf club and, <laughs> you know, he went snow skiing up at Guthiga. So they were both very sporty. Mum loved to tennis. And, you know, I guess they introduced me to a lot of sports. You know, they took me to soccer. Dad took me skiing. Um, and eventually, I think I was about eight, you know, and they, they would go to tennis and I'd be sort of dragging a racket around at the back of the court and they gave me uh, a lesson with a guy by the name of Charlie Hollis and this is pretty fortuitous because Charlie Hollis lived in a caravan with an extension cord plugged into the National Tennis Centre at Lynham in the ACT um, and he was in his 60s at the time but he had coached Rod Laver and Rod uh, gave Charlie a whole chapter in his book, um, you know, one of his autobiographies, his first autobiography. Uh, Charlie was a very, very significant figure in Australian tennis. Charlie also coached Mark Edmondson, um, the last Australian male to win the Australian Open. So there he was at Canberra, and my first lesson was with Charlie Hollis. Um, how lucky was I? Once again, you talk about things coming together. So just a tremendous character, tremendous mentor, um, and a tremendous coach. We just instilled some great foundations. Um, but probably what I will say is I had a bit of a slow burn. Um, the world at that time you know, the Boletaries and the Hopmans and the academies were really booming in America and there was a, a lot of sort of accelerated development where kids were playing, you know, coming out of school and playing, you know, four or five hours of tennis a day. You know, I lived in Canberra. There was no indoor courts. I still liked my skiing. Um, so it was a bit of a slow burn in terms of, you know, my development because I was still doing other things mm. um, and going to school. Um, it probably explains why my, my best year was 30. Um kind of took a while to get there I didn't sort of mm. I wasn't a prodigious talent as a youngster I guess um, and I needed a bit more volume and intensity and it took a while to get that but yeah eight years old first lesson and yeah I was kind of hooked so 
What role did your parents play in the pursuit, Wally? I mean, were you left to choose your own path? Were you encouraged? Were you coerced? Were you? Um, what role did they play to sit you back and say whatever, whatever you want to do? Whatever I wanted to do. Yeah. And you know, I wanted to leave school to play tennis, and Mum was a school teacher. Her cousin was a um, professor at Macquarie Uni in Sydney, and she rang him up and said, "What do you think?" And he goes, "Yeah, let him go for it." You know, it was very. They were great. My parents were great, and look. I, old, we could talk how, for hours about how, parents and sport. How old were you then? Uh, that was about 17 at the time, right. finishing school, but I just wanted to go. I was ready to go. But, you know, I, I actually played the Australian Open semis and mum and dad were in Canberra and I rang them up and I made the semis. I said, do you want to come down and watch? And they were like, oh, <laughs> is it on telly? It's on seven. I said, yeah, it's on seven. They said, oh, look, we'll, we'll watch it on the telly. <laughs> you um, kidding? It was, you know, they were – Tremendously interested, but they had their own lives. They didn't live my life. And I was so fortunate because I see a lot of overly interested parents in my role with Tennis Australia in performance. Yeah. Um, I just don't think, re- I don't think a lot of them realise they're not playing the right role. They're not playing a parental role. They step into a coaching role and it's tricky. It's really tricky. But I was unbelievably fortunate, you know, in that being an only child, you know, mum was a school teacher. She got school holidays, so she had the ability to take me to various tournaments and travel and, and you know, have the, the, the two of them had the money to, to help me along the way. Um, so I would say I was really, really – so you're sort of asking me, you know, how did you fall into this? You can see you need a lot of things to go right. And when I look back upon it, you know, my parents were tremendous assets in that respect in my early years. Never, ever, ever pushed me. Never pushed me because this um, is this I is to do it. this is certainly not exclusive to tennis, Wally. Of course, as unfortunate as that is, and, and accurately or otherwise, tennis does have a reputation of the the parents being how would you say it overly enthusiastic around it, doesn't it? So that that was why I asked because we you know well, you hear, yeah, I know the story. Um, I took my my dad to Wimbledon many you know midway through my career, and dad came over and we were you know you rent apartments in and around the courts and. I had to play Henri Leconte in the first round. So that's that's a pretty good match, you know. And I said, Dad, I'll get your tickets. And he's like, oh. He goes, look, I don't know. I don't know. He goes, maybe um, maybe I'll just go to the shops and I'll get us a really good dinner and you go and play your match and come back and we'll have dinner and we can talk about it. Um, so he sort of said he was probably a bit nervous to come and watch. But I think Dad only watched me maybe four or five times in my whole life. Mum, not much more. Um but it was just different, you know, but they were very interested. Like I used to get the ATP weekly or monthly sent to dad. He knew all the players, all the rankings. He really loved it. He was very interested, but it was my thing, you know, and they, we spoke about it privately. That's kind of how it worked. And I, I think that was really healthy. So when did you first think uh, you were playing for fun, as you say, and you were a slow burn, but when did you actually think I might have something here? Was there a moment, a match, a pivotal time where you thought I can actually make a life out of this? No, I think, um, well, you know, my wife always tells me I'm very arrogant. I think I was just arrogant enough to think it was always going to happen. I was just going to make it happen. Um, you know, I, I kind of never doubted. I just, just just what I wanted to do. So I was just going to push it as far as it would go. Um, getting back to Charlie Hollis, um, one of the things he, you know, whether he did it intentionally or not, but every time you finished a session, so you never had a private lesson with Charlie. The smallest group was eight or 12 the biggest group could be 60 kids. That's just how he operated. Um, but he would always give you kind of a pat on the back and he'd say, you, you'll you be at Wimbledon one day. And you'd have to repeat it. He'd say, where will you be? And you'd have to say, I'll be at Wimbledon one day, Charlie. Um, and you'd walk away. So I don't know if I was brainwashed or what, um, but it was just, as I say, it was something I wanted to do. I had a good, a whole lot of good, you know, with my parents and Charlie had a really good setup. Um, and I had the opportunity and, you know, obviously too, one, another thing that fell into my lap, you know, coming from Australia with a big federation like Tennis Australia with the Australian Open as a backup, they had money. So they would send junior teams away. So I went away twice with the junior Grand Slam tour. So you got to play Rome, French juniors, Wimbledon juniors, US juniors, travel with Pat Cash. So once again, you know, older ex-players like Ray Ruffles and Bob Carmichael managing you on those tours, people that had been through the, the whole rigors of life on the tour knew exactly what was coming. You know, they, they were your, your team managers and your mentors. 
everything was, we were just so fortunate. And then, you know, I've got a guy like Cashy, who was a superstar as my traveling uh, partner, playing partner, practice partner. Like, how good is that? Amazing. The 1980 Australian Open, uh, you reach the final of the boys' singles. I think you're, you're only 16 at this stage, and you, you lose to your compatriot, Craig Miller, 6726, who unfortunately would have health concerns a couple of years later. But how big of a tournament was this? And um, as you said, you were always going to make it, and this was perhaps another step in it. But uh, what are your memories of 1980 Australian Open? Yeah, I, look, Millsy was... Um kind of he's big you know big kid big junior and they're always tough to beat um and you're right unfortunately mills passed away about a year ago um cancer got him he had a really brave fight with cancer but unfortunately lost that but in a tremendous player craig miller really talented good friend um always tough playing your mates but you know my memory of the junior years were you know being surrounded by like-minded people you know mm. common interest um you know matches were I don't think it was quite as intense back then. You know, the, 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 there wasn't as much money around. It just didn't seem as angst-ridden as it seems now with some of the kids. Um, it just seemed like we were kind of all on a bit of a journey together. It was utterly enjoyable. Mills was too good for me, um, and I travelled with Mills on one of those Grand Slam tours. Um, but it's pretty fortunate, you know, when I talk about that type of player, to have them in and around you and the fact that they were better than you and you got the chance to practise with them every day, Um was pretty instrumental in moving forward. You mo- you move forward. You turn professional in eighty two. I mean, how much thought? What what's the process in turning professional? Is it just straightforward? A fader can play. What what went into that? Just just want to play. Just yeah. let me at it. You know. Just um, and I guess if you're not going to college, like if you if you you know some colleges had asked me, um, you know, was I interested in the college pathway, which was pretty valid back in those days. And I, you know, a lot of players like a John Fitzgerald, for example, went to Oklahoma State for a period of time, and a lot of Australian players did that. Um, and that was an option. So then you'd have to declare your amateur status or you were turning professional, but it wasn't as relevant in Australia because I didn't go to college. So you just you just enter tournaments, and obviously, if you don't have the ranking to get in, you rely on a wild card because you're a promising junior, you do get those wild cards and you do get those opportunities. Another benefit that I got from being an Australian with a big federation who run tournaments. So you can see how all these things are adding up to opportunity for me. Um, and so, yeah, the idea of turning professional was I just yeah, wanted to get out on the road and play, basically. You got out on the road. You won in Perth first up, uh, didn't you? That was early in your professional career. Yeah, and look, Australia at the time, a lot of the tennis was on grass and that was pretty fortunate for me also because I had a game that was suited to grass. You know, I like to serve and volley and I like the faster courts. So there was another benefit to me in that I had a lot of opportunity to build, to win matches and build points and build a ranking over the course of the Australian summer um, on grass and then take all those points, get on the clay, which was a real struggle, but then I'd get that grass court experience in the middle of the year in England and then you would move to the fast hard courts of the US so there was big chunks of the year where the surfaces really suited. You're with This Is Your Journey it's brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives you can find them online at tobinbrothers.com.au we'll be back with Wally Masseur right after this You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals visit tobinbrothers.com.au Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Journey. We're with uh, former tennis player, coach and administrator Wally Masseur. So Wally, your first year, you go ahead and win a bigger title uh, and you win in Hong Kong. How special was that? Yeah, that was interesting. Um and it's sort of funny having this conversation with you because, you, you know, you talk about opportunity and, and how fortunate someone like myself was growing up in the time that I did in Australia. So another thing was we had this great history, rich history of former great players. So I went to play a couple of tournaments in Asia and Kim Warwick, who was a Grand Slam finalist in singles, a Grand Slam winner in doubles, he and I used the same racket brand made in which was made in Taiwan so Kim said do you want to play doubles in Taiwan and I said sure you know and I'm playing with a Grand Slam champion and I've got no doubles points we get a wild card by virtue of his relationship with the manufacturer who was a sponsor of the tournament blah 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 we win it 
you know, I'm playing with Kim Warwick and we win it. You know, he carries me to a title. So all of a sudden I've got a doubles ranking. So the next week we go to Hong Kong. And as you had to in those days, you always, you know, there was no hospitality. So you always roomed together with somebody. Um, and Kim and I actually roomed together the next week. Um, and the Australian players, you know, I mentioned Kim Warwick, but, you know, Mark Edmondson, John Alexander, yeah. you know, Paul McNamee, Peter McNamara, they were so generous with their time. You know, like Paul McNamee gave me the keys to his London apartment when I was a I was like 19 years old and I, I needed somewhere to stay. And he, he said, go and see this lady. She's got my keys and I'm staying in an amazing apartment, in, you know, a nice suburb of London. That, you know, J.A. would give you the keys to his car. I lived with J.A. for two years up here in Sydney when I was from Canberra. Like, I can't tell you how good the older Australian players were to the likes of myself and Cashy. Um, but just on Hong Kong, so Kim and I are rooming together. Kim actually gets sick. He gets quite sick and he's pretty much bedridden. So he loses the first round. He's, he's caught some bug up there and he's not well. And I'm playing a whole bunch of players. I'm at a whole new level of tournament and I'm playing a bunch of players I don't really know. So I'd say, Kimbo, I've got to play David Pate. I've got to play Brian Teacher. I've got to play Edo. And he's in bed and he's giving me tips. And I, he'd go, how'd you go? Come back. So I won. You know, and I, who do you play now? I play David Pate. Oh, you've got to serve wide to his foreign. You've got to get him to pass your back end on the run, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, got to play Edo. Oh, yeah, Edo's got a bit of a sore shoulder. You've really got to put a lot of pressure on his serve. His elbow's no good, you know, blah, blah, blah. I ended up winning. So I come back every day and Kim would give me the, the nod for the next guy and I ended up winning the tournament. I thought, how easy is this? <laughs> I'm 19 years of age. I won a big event and I think I won the final like 6-1, 6-1. I was on fire. Um, but then you, you realise that those sort of moments where you're completely free and uninhibited and playing this really sort of tennis almost at a subconscious level where there's no pressure, all of a sudden once you win a tournament, people are very aware of you, they're aware of your game, everything changes. And, you know, that was just a little moment, a little window. But it was quite interesting that there was a very sick Kim Warwick um, advising me throughout the course of the tournament. And it's sort of interesting too, it's not just advising you about the players you've got to play, but they talk about, you know, what your warm-up should look like and, you know, don't hit after you've played, do this, do that, you know. Yeah, it was just yeah, kind of like life lessons on the tour. So we were so fortunate to have those guys yeah. to help us learning on the job, isn't it? And what a head spinner though! Like, like you're talking about the some of the giants of Australian tennis. Like, I mean, did you have a time where you're thinking, "Holy, I just can't believe this is happening"? And then standing on the other side of the court to guys like Jimmy Connors, John McEnroe. <laughs> did you ever have a moment where you thought, "Holy crap, I can't believe this is happening"? Well, that that's pretty stressful because you'd get wild cards into some big events, um, and you end up running into those names. You know, I played Connors here at the Sydney Indoors. I uh, played Gene Mayer, a hell of a player, Vetus Gerolitis, uh, played McEnroe at Wimbledon, Connors at Wimbledon. And whilst you're emerging as a pro player and you're getting better, you're just not in their league and you're not, particularly over five sets, you know, you can really get shown up. Uh, McEnroe beat me pretty comfortable in the quarters of the Australian Open one year. Connors beat me pretty comfortable. I mean, I was always competitive, I guess. Um, but they were, you know, classes above. But what it does when you get to play those guys, A, it's very nerve-wracking, so it takes you a while to settle down. You walk out onto a big stage where you're in a centre court of Wimbledon. Um, that's nerve-wracking. And it takes you a while to settle down. So you, you, you're behind the eight ball. You, you know, the first set kind of goes. It's like a blur. You're so nervous you can't really play. Then you st- sort of settle down and you play well, but then they elevate their game to sort of put the foot down and, and beat you. But you walk away and you just it's – it's an unbelievable lesson. It's a lesson, you know, about where you need to be and, and what matters and, and just how good they are. Yep. So I'll give you a quick story. I, I played Wimbledon for the first time and I was in all sorts of trouble in the first round. I was down like 6-4, 6-4, against a, a guy called Lloyd Bourne, big serving American. I just couldn't get it together. But the winner had to play Jimmy Connors and I just wanted to play Jimmy Connors. And I somehow found a way to win that match. So I'm playing Connors two days later. Um, in those days, they used to take you into a little ante room, very small, and you'd sit opposite. I'm sitting opposite Jimmy Connors, about to walk onto centre court. And the nerves are enormous, um, but it's exciting at the same time. And we walk out onto the court. Jimmy asked me to call the coin toss. The coin's up in the air. I couldn't get the words out. He's looking at me like, you know, maybe this guy's not all there. Um, anyway, Played Jimmy Connors, played quite well, got beat in straight sets, but it was credible. It wasn't bad. I didn't get embarrassed. Um, And at one point in the match, I'd fallen on my hand and my racket was in my hand and it kind of crushed my thumb, really hurt it, really hurt it. Um, And the next day it's always worse. But I'm in the locker room after the match and Jimmy, Jimmy's manager came up to me and said, Jimmy, 
plays at Wimbledon every second day. On his day off, he likes to go to Queens to practice. Would you like to practice with Jimmy tomorrow? And my thumb was already blowing up and I'm like, yeah, I'll be there. So I, I get the train to Queens, Queens Club, where they played the tournament the week prior. Jimmy's there on his court. He's skipping. I've just played him the day before. Jimmy talks to me for about five minutes, very friendly. You know, how's JA? Do you know John? I, you know, we talk about Australian players, something we have in common. Five minutes. Then we get on court and we hit for one hour. And it was the most intense hour I'd ever experienced in practice. And I'm thinking, this is no different to the match. Like Jimmy Connors in, in the match on the practice floor is the same guy. Didn't talk to me for one hour. Then the hour's up. He skipped a little more. We had a bit more of a chat and he went. And we did that every second day. He hit with me. But it was like you get these little moments, these little windows, and it's a revelation as to what where you need to be and how far off the pace you are. Yeah. Not not in not in the standard of your play, but in the standard of your preparation and how you need to go about your business. Like that was a huge eye opener for me. And Jimmy, you know, th- these modern players, you know, the Federers and the Nadals, they are phenomenal players. But it was a different game and a different time. But you know, Connors and McEnroe and these guys were phenomenal players. Um, phenomenal players and Jimmy was Jimmy was a force and to have that time that Wimbledon fortnight doing that with him every second day they're little things that occur and they take it takes you to another level yeah Um, and the fact that someone like Jimmy has that sort of belief in you even that bolsters your self you know uh, just yeah your self-confidence I guess yeah, so these are great lessons, life lessons, aren't they? And regardless of you know where they're from, there's it seems like there's a great camaraderie. I mean, you mentioned some of the older generation of Australian players and and how they got around you. I I wonder about the those that you were actually in direct competition with. So so Pat Cash, as he mentions, coming through now, he recalls in his autobiography there's a chapter there where he sought to give you some intel on how to beat Stefan Edberg of course the legendary Swedish uh, Sir Volier as he was become uh, as he would become known but he told you listen uh, while they just expect a typical Swede here he's going to sit back on the baseline yeah no Cashy was uh, let, let me just Cashy was the best guy to travel with what well, Cashy has the biggest heart you know he, he phenomenal player but Cashy was one of the great team men in Davis Cup, you know, good good bloke to have around. And we travelled together quite a bit, particularly in our early years. And Cashy sort of progressed quite quickly. You know, he was already um, making his move in slams, you know, as a youngster. He was precocious talent. But he did tell me that Stefan was a backboard, was, you know, just going to grind away. And sort of had this feeling. I thought, I'm not, not sure that's correct. I'm not quite sure that's right. And sure enough, Stefan served volleyed first and second for three sets. And I was like, Cashy, you might be a good player, but you're a dud coach. Um, but, you know, that was that was all. Uh, I think he just, I don't know what he did, got his wires crossed, saw Stefan on a bad day. I'm not sure what happened. But, you know, getting back to the older players and how important they were for younger players like myself and John Fitzgerald and Brad Drew, we'd all say the same. The players that I travelled with, John Fitzgerald, you know, Darren Cahill, mm. Pat Cash, Craig Miller, who you mentioned earlier, that that was a huge part of the tour for me. They were mates. You know, we played doubles together. We ate together. We played golf together. We went skiing together. Um, and, you know, they're still guys that you call today for a beer and to catch up whenever you get the chance. And it's so good. You know, I've had the opportunity through commentary to go back to events and, you know, Cashy's there and you have a bit of banter and, and see him again. Um, but... He was a giant of Australian tennis, but he was right in there with you. He he really wanted you to do well. How do you look back on your two Grand Slam semifinals? So Ed Berg, he was on the other side of the, the net in the semifinals of the '87 Australian Open. He got you in three sets, and then uh, and then he got Pat in five in the final. And '93 Cedric Pelin in the U.S. Open. '93 we'll get to was probably your best year personally, singles and doubles. How do you reflect on those two pivotal moments um, when you're in the final four? Well, the Kuyong, for whatever reason, the court suited me down to the ground really hard, really fast, high-bouncing, hard, fast grass courts. And that, for whatever reason, I didn't have the biggest serve. The pace of the courts gave me a bit of help um, in terms of the serve. Um, always played well there, made a quarter there, lost to McEnroe, had Edberg match points. I had match points on Edberg in the fourth round one year, didn't win that. But that was funny that particular year because I'd beaten Becker and there'd been a bit of rain. Um, in that year, in 1987, and I beat Becker, beat Kelly Evenden, who'd beaten Kevin Curran, which was quite a big upset. And then I played doubles that afternoon. So I'd played Becker five, Kelly three sets, and then a five sets of doubles in the space of two days. And then I had a day off. 
And it was I was just so lactic and so sore against Stefan in the semis that the first set I was creaking and then I kind of woke up a little bit and got going. But I couldn't beat Stefan. I, I had chances in various other tournaments, but he was much too good for me on the day. But I just I couldn't remember. I just couldn't believe how sore I was. <laughs> just yeah. And you know, you talk about sports science and nutrition and getting yourself right. You know, I, I probably could have done certain things better. Um, leading into that particular match. But, yeah, I, I just remember just being unbelievably tired um, and my tournament was kind of done. And st- But as I said, I couldn't beat Stefan um, at the best of times, so it was a tough day for me, that particular one. I thought Cashy would get him in the final. I really did. Um, Cashy had beaten him in Davis Cup on that very court. But, yeah, it was Stefan's week. Before we get to the break, 93, that peak year I mentioned, you won doubles titles in Milan and Stuttgart and, and you got to obviously 15 in the world in singles. Cedric Pielin, that semi-final. Now, there was a Pete Sampras juggernaut going on there at the moment. He rolled Cedric in the final, but how do you reflect on the semi? Yeah, I, I played probably the best match of my life, the match prior. Um, couldn't, couldn't put a foot wrong. It was just weird. It was like I had a weird experience in the fourth round. I was down five love in the fifth and I won it. Um, so it was almost like the moon was aligning with the stars and I was thinking, what is going on here? And then the next match, you, you kind of look back upon and say, how many times did I play really, really well? How many times did everything go exactly as planned? It might only be once or twice in your career. Well, that that match against Magnus Larsson was one of those matches. Everything just came out of the middle. I kind of saw it happening before it happened. And yeah. He was good. You know, he was a hard guy to dismantle and I think I might have beaten him in straight sets. It just flowed. And I was thinking, well, how good is this? You know, I'm, I'm ready to go. And then... Against Cedric, who was a really dynamic player, he was hard to predict, very unpredictable. You couldn't get much rhythm. He would just sort of launch into certain shots and then he could play a bit passively and then he'd play really aggressively. So it was hard to settle into a rhythm. And I'd lost to Cedric 7-5 in the fifth at Wimbledon that year in the fourth round. Um, and then he got me, yeah, four sets there. He, he, he sort of played – he was slightly bigger than me, Slightly more athletic than me, more weight of shot. He's just a little bit better. And I, you know, those, those were two big matches and I just couldn't get him. Um, he had a very good record in the slams, actually, Cedric, over the course of five. Very dangerous player, very sort of mercurial. He could get run hot. But I had to laugh because I worked in broadcast for so many years. And at the time, it was pretty exciting. I thought, well, there's Cedric, there's myself, there was Volkov, you know, three journeymen. I would describe this as, well, Cedric obviously went on to play a number of slam finals, so that's probably, probably couldn't call him a journeyman. Um, but I think anyone outside of the top 10 is a journeyman in my book because the tour revolves around the top five, the top 10. The rest of us are making up our numbers and we're working hard waiting for lightning to strike. And lightning struck me at the US Open, but Cedric was too good to me because there was Volkov, there was myself and, um, and Cedric. And Pete Sampras, and from a player's perspective, I, I thought, how good is this? The boys, we've got three of us, we're in the semis. How good is this? And Pete's like this, uh, you know, luminary over here. But then when I worked in the media for years and years and years, the CBS or NBC or whoever are covering it in America must have been pulling the hair out going, oh, my God, you know, because they want the big names. Yeah. They want all four top four seeds there. They must have been scratching their head going, Wally who? Cedric, who's, you know, Volkov, who? Um, they probably would have thought it was a nightmare because, you know, I, I was party to a lot of the conversations of the producers, you know, get all excited when they got the big guns there, pulling their hair out when the lesser lights are there. So I sort of saw both sides of the spectrum. But, look, it was an exciting time and it, it culminated. Um, it was a culmination of three, lot, a lot of hard work with a guy by the name of Gavin Hopper mm. who had helped me on the tour. And, um, yeah, it was, it was a good year, 93. We're talking to Wally Masur on This Is Your Journey. It's thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Davis Cup, coaching, and the commentary box are up next. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Journey. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934, and former tennis pro Wally Masseur has been our guest today. So, Wally, Davis Cup. I mean, how do you look back on that chapter of your career as a player and playing for your country? Because it's something you were really passionate about. Yeah, the um, as a kid growing up, you know, the idea that 
if you were playing tennis, there was two things you really were keen to compete at Wimbledon and be a part of that because um, that was something that was always held in such high esteem. And the other thing was playing Davis Cup because we'd had this tremendous record, you know, the halcyon years of the 50s and 60s, Harry Hopman, um, very aware of what those players had achieved, um, particularly in Davis Cup. And then, as I said, my coach was Charlie Hollis, who'd coached Rod Laver. So he, he kind of filled my head full of Rod Laver stories. And, you know, I got to meet Rod and I got to meet Ken Rosewell. Um, so, you know, playing Davis Cup was always something that um, I aspired to. Mm. Got the chance to do it. Um, I had a trial by fire, played Mats Wallander in Sweden in a semi-final. Probably shouldn't have been in the team. But Pat Cash was out with a herniated disc. Paul McNamee had to have a kidney removed. Um, so players that were ahead of me in the pecking order were really sick, yeah. um, couldn't play. And I, I wasn't quite ready, but, you know, I, I had to step up and I got crunched by Willander. And I think I was paying for the sins of Cashy and co beating them up in Kuyong a few years earlier. So... That, that was a kind of a pivotal moment for me because I realised I just wasn't good enough at that level and I really needed to work harder. So in some ways um, it helped me, but it was pretty crushing to think that you wanted to represent your country um, and do amazing things and play as poorly as I did. Mm. And I actually had a terrible record starting out. I was two wins and nine losses. Um, I'm not sure why Neil Fraser kept picking me, but he must have seen something, but um, it just took me, I just couldn't, some players are born to play Davis Cup in terms of the emotional state they're in and Leighton Hewitt, certainly one of them. He was amazing. Um, Cashy was too, big match player, loved the energy and the tension and the excitement of Davis Cup. I was kind of the opposite. I just couldn't get it together. I was too nervous. So it took me a while, but eventually I got there, uh, ended up with a winning record, which was pleasing and helped Australia get we had two campaigns where we got to finals and I was a big part of those campaigns winning you know, one year. I think I was six matches in a row undefeated. So that was really important to me, but I loved the whole aspect of Davis cup, the team environment, um, good mates around me, Cashy, Fitzy, for example, you know, Todd Woodbridge, um, people that I'd grown up playing with and we were kind of sharing that experience. So playing Davis cup was hugely important in your development, your development as a development as a player, as a player, it's a lot of pressure. Um, which kind of mirrors the slams. And I, yeah, had the opportunity to, to Fitzy and I had the opportunity when Newcomb and Roach departed to kind of put our hands up to guide the team. And Fitzy was the captain, I was the coach. And we got that opportunity and it was it was unbelievable because we, we got hold of a pretty good team. <laughs> and um, yeah, it, it was we had five or six years here at the helm and it was pretty phenomenal. Just before we leave you as a player in the Davis Cup, you mentioned that before year we where you went six straight. So you were 6-0 and in 1990. I just wanted to ask whether the events of 1990 hurt you because you got the Aussies into the final against the US, but you were dropped for the final when Neil Fraser left you out. Now, at the time, there was all sorts of controversy attached to that and the media were all over it. And I don't know if the service was an issue or not, but did it affect you much as a player? Was that something that, that scarred you or were we overplaying? No, he, Fraser made the right he made the right decision, but boy, did I give it to him and I still do. Um, <laughs> but he, I just wasn't great on clay. You know, I, there was no way I was beating the players. In Germany, it happened to me too. I got dropped for the final. And then against the States, I got dropped for the final. And both those matches were played on indoor clay. And of course, overseas teams were always going to pick clay to play Australia. They weren't going to pick a hard court with the likes of Cashy in the team, for example. They were always going to go to clay. And, yeah, it was just a struggle for me. Um, I could play on clay if it was altitude. Um, definitely needed the right conditions. But indoors, sea level, yeah, I wasn't going to beat anybody. So Fraze made the right call. Um, and, you know, I didn't – I don't think – I don't think I got too wound up about it. I think I saw it coming, you know. Yeah. And But I went, you know, I was part of the team and – Look, to be honest, I wasn't even in the team. I got dropped from the team because you need your two singles players and you need your doubles team. There's only four in a team. So I went from winning six straight to getting there to being completely dropped, um, which I didn't really worry about at the time. But I guess when you look back upon it, I didn't get my name on the Davis Cup, which you do when you're in the team in a final, even if you lose. And that would have been nice. It's a massive trophy. Um but I'm not the most nostalgic guy, so I got over it pretty quick. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, Davis Cup captain 2015, I imagine, was a tremendous honour. Oh, that year, you took the team, I think you lost a semi-final uh, to Britain, and then you were gone by 2016. So the one and done, what, what happened there? Um, yeah, look, I guess I had 
Fitzy was the captain. I was the I was the coach, and I thought there'd be sort of this opportunity over a period of years that once Fitzy left, I might get the opportunity to be the captain. Um, but Tennis Australia was going through a bit of a revamp. Craig Tiley had come on board, and they were building all of these national academies around the country um, in each state. And Craig really wanted me to head up the Sydney Academy. Um, which was a, a different direction from coach to captain and, you know, a bit more hands-on with our emerging players. So yeah. I did get involved here in Sydney and, you know, through that academy there was Diminard, Duckworth, Thompson, Max Purcell, Rinky Hijikata, Sion Mendes. So, you know, we we really got the opportunity to to put our stamp on a lot of emerging players that, that went on to, and are having successful careers. So it was a big um, step away from the Davis Cup and I thought that opportunity had been lost to captain it, but... Pat Rafter had a hiatus and he walked, he stepped away and he asked me, would I do it? And I did it for one year prior to Leighton becoming captain. Yeah. Um, and we, and we made the semi-final, but it was always an interim role. It was never going to be ongoing. And that was understood because Leighton had already, you know, that had already been agreed to that he would be the captain the following year. Um, but yeah, I, it was, it was fantastic to get the chance having played coached to be the captain, albeit for one year. And, and look, we had a pretty good campaign. So I was happy. I wanted to ask you about Ash Barty, who earlier this year shocked just about probably everyone outside her real inner circle with her retirement. I mean, obviously, world number one, three times a Grand Slam winner, at the absolute top of her game, and then, nup, I'm done. I mean, do you look at that and just think, how's the courage and the conviction in a person to do that? Yeah, it, it's – and from a selfish point of view, you kind of want Ash to keep going. Yeah. She's you know, so good to watch, so successful – such a gracious winner and loser, you know, so good for the sport and amazing for Australian tennis. Um, so it's disappointing at that, almost at that level, you know, as a, as a viewer, as the audience, yeah. think, oh, no, she's not going to be playing um, because she had such a point of difference and she was such a natural, she was such a great tennis player. Um, you know, she was the antithesis of the sort of the, um, the let's say, the... Uh, you know, the academy player where they just get fed a million balls and they just almost learn tennis by rope. You know, she was this brilliant tennis player. But she had walked away from the game as a junior. Um, and, I mean, it's, I wouldn't profess to know Ash well, but, look, she knows her own mind. Mm. You know, clearly being happy is something that really matters to her. Um, and she's pretty clear in what she wants and knows how to go about it. And I'd like to think that, you know, I think she just got married recently that, Maybe we'll see her again one more time. Um, I still think there's a lot of good tennis left in there, but who knows what direction she'll take or what she wants to do. But, uh, yeah, quite unique, isn't it, to walk away at the very, very top. But having said that, I actually still think Ash was getting better. I think she was getting better. I think there was more improvement in her. Uh, I think she really kind of understood, was really starting to understand her game and how to dismantle her opponents and, you know, she could win on any surface. The, uh, she left a few slams on the table, I've got to say. Yeah. You played in an era, too, of Sampras, Agassi, Becker, Lendl, Edberg, McEnroe, Connors, we spoke about him, and many more. But this golden generation we've all witnessed since, well, 2004, probably, with uh, Roger, Raffer and Novak. I mean, how accurate do you think it is to say that we've perhaps seen, you know, the, the greatest, three greatest players in the history of the men's game all fighting for Grand Slams pretty much at the same time? It, it is extraordinary just how durable they are, how consistent they are. I'll put a little caveat on it. Um, the surfaces have become a little more generic. So you can play a certain way and transfer your game from Rome, uh, sorry, from Paris to Wimbledon to the USO to the Australian Open. You've just got to master the movement on the different surfaces and the players can certainly do that. If you look at someone like Sampras, as great as he was, he made one French Open semi. If you look at as, as great as Mats Wallander was, he got the best he ever did at Wimbledon was the quarters because the variance in surface in the 80s, for example, was so great. Grass barely bounced. You know, Mats Wallander couldn't beat Pat Cash because he couldn't pass him because he had to hit every passing shot from below knee height. He had no options. Couldn't pass Cashy. Um, but, you know, that changed. The surfaces became somewhat similar. So the, the best players could win on every surface. And probably another thing that was interesting was if you look at the 70s and the 80s, you had some players were still playing. They'd actually learned how to play with wooden, small wooden rackets morphing into the graphite mid-size, oversize. So there was this technology was changing mid-career for certain players. Right now, you know, poly came up, graphite's been around and Kevlar's been around forever. 
the big shift was in the 90s to the poly strings. But anyone who's playing now has had a lot of time to adapt, so it's really consistent in terms of what they're using. So I think some players were disadvantaged by the technology technology shifts that were occurring mid-career. They didn't actually, you know, they were stuck in a past era as technology had moved very quickly. So, you know, a player like Agassi was coming along who was thoroughly modern, but he was still beating players in some of them that had learnt a very old-school, you know, way of playing with old-school rackets. Mm. Um so that has allowed these these big four, for example, in the men's game to just dominate. But it, it has been extraordinary and it's been extraordinarily good for tennis, just the nature of the competition, very different men, different styles, you know, the lefty, Rafa, you know, Roger being the brilliant artist, Novak just being Novak, being brilliant in so many ways, and Andy Murray just interjecting himself every now and then on the, on the right surface, you know, winning Wimbledon in the Olympics, for example, and being a great foil for the other three. So it's been a a phenomenal time in tennis. So Wally, Davis Cup captain, Davis Cup coach, I know you're passionate about development and and the pathways that we've spoken about as well. And and you've worked the commentary boxes all over the globe. What are you, what keeps you busy now as we speak now in uh, Um, August of 22? Yeah. So I I was performance director for six years, but I've just taken a step away from that role. Um, I'm still working here in Sydney with some, decent emerging players from time to time, but certainly not full-time. And I'm doing a little bit of media. Like I'm, I've done some work for Stan Sports during the French and during Wimbledon. We're going to do another little sort of daily show for the US Open, um, kind of a preview review show. And I did a bit of commentary over the course of the Australian summer. So nice way to stay involved. Um, if you can't do it anymore, you talk about it. Yeah, that's right. Wally, thanks so much for joining us today. I mean, your on-court career alone would have been cause for celebration, but the fact that you've contributed so much to the sport that you love makes you know your journey a special one. Certainly, there has been as much giving back as there has been taking from. So well done on everything you achieved, and thanks a lot for joining us. Well, thank you. I, I do think it's a case of you know, right place, right time. Here I am. And thanks for joining us also. Wally Masur joining us. You've been listening to This Is Your Journey for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You can jump online and find them, tobinbrothers.com.au. And we'll catch you the next time we celebrate another great sporting journey. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au. Predict Australia's score with a crystal ball. And it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.